I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to Seriously for another week. Lots of you have been getting in touch. Ari, our discussion last week about Alison Bechtel's Fun Home, the graphic novel of her sort of teenage relationship with her father, because we asked you to recommend us other similar things, because also given how much we love Persepolis, we feel like Mm. there must be other teen graphic memoirs out there that we can enjoy. And indeed, we were right. There are lots. Yes, you've been warm and generous with your recommendations. You have indeed. So we had a really lovely email from Iona, who confirmed for us that the kind of older person introducing you to these things is a very important figure. She talks about Gali, a beautiful artist and printmaker who was a neighbour and friend when she was a teenager, helped her get into these things. And she said, as well as patiently answering my questions about page setout and style, she also let me borrow from her extensive graphic novel collection. And it was through this I read Fun Home and Persepolis. Another one that she lent me, which I can definitely recommend, is Craig Thompson's Blankets. First of all, it's just a beautiful story. And second of all, it's just done with so much warmth and sensitivity that it's almost like being wrapped in a blanket just reading it, which sounds really lovely and makes me really want to read this. And also, it's a really lovely email. Oh, and also, can I just say, the postscript of this email makes me so happy because it just says, P.S. Detectorists, and then there are six exclamation marks. Oh, that's so nice. Thanks, Iona. That's so lovely. Because we've had a few other sort of tweets and messages and stuff recommending us graphic novel type things. Yeah, I, I also had a recommendation of blankets from someone who DM'd me and from a person that I actually know. Similarly, Eamon left a post on our Tumblr saying exactly the same. The other interesting coming-of-age graphic novel of recent years of Blankets by Craig Thompson. So okay. I feel like we're being... It's canonical, obviously. We yeah. need to get on it, definitely. So yeah, look, look out for that in a, in a future episode, I think, listeners. We also had a really lovely email in from Harry Womersley, or Womersley, sorry, Harry, who said, Ari, our discussion of the film Quartet, I thought you might be interested to know that there is at least one retirement home specifically for opera singers. It's called the Casa di Reposa per Musicisti and was set up by Verdi in the late 19th century. A documentary about it called Tosca's Kiss was made about 30 years ago. I also think there are one or two in Austria somewhere. Still, strange place to want to spend your retirement. 
Thanks, Harry. That's really cute. I had no idea. I really want to watch that documentary now. Yeah, me too. It's like, what a specific thing to have, but I think it's really, really interesting. So we also wanted to just do a general public service announcement about spoilers on the podcast. Yeah, very occasionally people get in touch to ask us, are you spoiling X, Y, or Z? What is your spoiler policy? What is your spoiler policy? So, for the avoidance of doubt, this is our spoiler policy. As you know, we like to take all things seriously, and this generally involves talking fairly in-depth about something. We will always put the timestamps of the different segments in the show notes. If you are still intending to see something and you don't want to know anything about it, just skip and come back later. That's obviously fine. We will also try at the beginning of each discussion to say how much of something we've watched. You know, So if it's a TV series with lots of episodes, we'll say, you know, we've watched four episodes, five episodes. If you're really, really worried about spoilers for something and we say, well, we've watched this many episodes, then you know that there's a risk. But I think if there is a big plot spoiler coming we will alert you to that before we say it. But at the same time, it would be a much less fun and probably a bit more asinine podcast if we didn't ever spoil (laughs) anything. It'd be quite hard to talk about things. It would basically be like us reading out the Radio Times. Like, a TV programme exists, this is the bland (laughs) sentence about what happens in it, you know. I used to write those for a newspaper where I'd be like, Well, there you go, you'd be really good at it. This week on Dragon's Den, (laughs) Duncan Bannatyne gets a little prickly yeah exactly <laughs> like, i haven't even seen it just, just know it's gonna happen <laughs> those are really euphemistic phrases so you know yeah. we, we could do that but we won't okay so with that in mind the first thing we're going to talk about this week is the film based on the novel room now i have to say from the off if you haven't seen the trailer for this film and you've heard nothing about it I would recommend going in with nothing. Yes. So the person I went to see it in cinema with did exactly that. And I very carefully, she kept asking me like, oh, what's this film about? Like, I didn't have time to look it up. I was like, nothing in particular. Yeah. Because I really wanted her to have that experience. As long as you know in advance that it is heavy. Like, there are some trigger warnings you should probably have, you know, in your mind for, you know, kidnap and rape. Like, those are the pretty major ones. But apart from that, you should go in not knowing anything. So this is the point at which, if you haven't seen the film and intend to, that you need to jump forward to the next section. Yeah. So we'll just leave a brief pause for you to do that. Now you've done that. (laughs) (laughs) So you've seen the film? Yes. Did you have a look through the book at all? I've read about half of the book. I didn't manage to finish it. Okay, cool. Uh, I've read the book too. So the general setup for those of you who are still with us, is it's the story of one woman who was kidnapped as a teenager, imprisoned in this room by this guy, and uh, he's obviously sexually abusing her, and uh, she ends up with a child out of that. So where the story starts is we have Ma, as she's mostly known, and Jack, her son, who is five. And they're in the room, and they're just trying to like navigate their normal life in these traumatic, awful, horrific circumstances, basically. Yeah, so... As both a coping mechanism for herself and also to give her son something vaguely resembling normality, she's assembled all these routines and processes for them to fill their time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is very, very domestic. So it's about washing the clothes or washing their hair or, you know, making sure they have meals at like meal times and not just whenever they feel like it. Mm -hmm. But also, because in the novel, it's all told very explicitly from Jack's point of view. Mm -hmm. But, and they've obviously tried to do that sort of cinematically as well. But you as a sort of adult looking in immediately realise that the reason why they do what he calls phys ed every day is because she's worried about the like him not developing properly and Mm -hmm. him not growing. So they do like jumping jacks and running and all kinds of physical activity. They There's a skylight in the roof of the shed. Room is a 
a sort of small shed. They they do sunbathing and like they lie underneath in the patch of sun, which yeah. is obviously an attempt to like get him some vitamin D. And so all of these things that she she turns them into games for him, but actually they have quite like serious underlying reasons. Yeah, and even their playtime is quite structured. They make lots of things for the room, drawings. They make a snake out of eggshells. These kinds of things, which are obviously in part just to amuse Jack, but also they're quite calculated ways of trying to get him to do, you know, other things that normal children would do and trying to stop him from just sitting in front of their, like, bad signal TV that they have in the corner all day because... You know, obviously then he just wouldn't develop properly mm. at all. Uh, the game that I really loved that I don't think was in the film but was in the book is the one that they call Parrot, where she puts mm. the, I think she puts the subtitles on the TV and he has to read them out or something. Yeah, or, or he's repeating. Or he's repeating. I think he might just be repeating. He's repeating, but clearly a way for him to like, learn vocabulary and he asks words that he yeah. doesn't know because obviously they they only have like half a dozen books or something that he's read over and over and over again so to try and like keep him educationally developing mm-hmm. that's a good way of doing it the way the book is structured is in four sections right so you have room at the start and then you have the second section is called unlying we also see this in the film we get the first half of their time in the room is looking at these routines and so on in their play and it seems quite light actually when i was watching the film i felt a bit uncomfortable about how light it was feeling Mm. and then you move into a slightly darker half in the room where Mart starts telling Jack there is a world outside because up to this point she's told him that room is everything there is, basically, because she's found it very difficult to explain to him that there's this entire world out there that he's restricted from going to and he's missing out on and other children and all that stuff. It was so difficult to try and get a child to even begin to comprehend that that she just kind of didn't. Part of that explaining process almost makes it hit her all over again the yeah. situation that Jack is in, when, once she starts trying to explain it to him, it's almost like she's like, oh my God, this is actually so, so urgent. He's already five. I need to get him out of here. And she starts basically doing this escape plan with Jack. Do you remember how Alice wasn't always in Wonderland? She fell down, down, down deep in a hole. Right, well, I wasn't always in room. <gasps> I'm like Alice. Now we've got a chance. I'm scared. I know. Truck. Truck. Wiggle out. Wiggle out. Jump. Jump. Run. Run. And the burden of the escape plan is all on Jack, really. Yeah. Again, big spoilers. They hatch a plan to make Jack look really, really ill. And the theory is then their captor will take him to hospital. Because the thing we should say that you you also get in that first couple of sections is that they're not kept in the room with no contact. Almost every night, their captor comes into the room. Mm-hmm. It's got a kind of like a panic room style door with a keypad. Mm-hmm. And only he knows the code. You know, he comes in every night. He brings groceries that she, she makes a list of like what they need he brings groceries and then jack sleeps in the wardrobe while he rapes his mum. Mm-hmm. and she's completely fixated and obsessed as she would be on the fact that jack can't be seen by they call him old nick we never mm-hmm. find out his actual name yeah so the, the plan is that if old nick is convinced enough that he's ill he'll take him out that doesn't work he doesn't want to risk that so then they pretend that jack has died from the illness and that he needs to get rid of the body there are some key differences between book and film at this point but mm. i don't know if you've read that far in the book there's a whole subplot that ma has had another baby oh. that died at birth 
because Old Nick was so unprepared for a birth and it came out with the cord wrapped around its neck and instantly died and he buried it in the garden and it causes her so much pain because she can tell, you know, that the baby is out there buried just, you know, metres from her. And so when Jack dies... Everything she's saying to him is very calculated to make him remember that. Yeah, you did this wrong the last yeah, time. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. You killed my babies, you know, you know, making it clear that this, this is your fault again. You've done this twice. And when she says, you know, you have to take him far away, that is really the reason that you believe that he would do that, I think, in the, in yeah. the book. Cause you're like, okay, he actually saw how traumatic it was for her the first time. You know, there obviously must be part of him that doesn't want her to be completely, you know, unavailable to him because yeah. he is trying to come and have this like, you know, awful style of intimacy with her once a once a day. But I feel like we should talk about what we actually thought of it. Yeah, so I found the story as I read it in the novel and then also as I saw it on film completely compelling, mm-hmm. kind of uncomfortable and strange and upsetting but I wanted to read it like a thriller you know in the sense because I wanted to just to know what happened I wanted each plot reveal I got that feeling more intensely from the novel than I did from the film though Mm. I think I enjoyed the film but I didn't at no point was I completely blown away by it if that makes sense oh that's funny because in the film yeah I really was, but I, I think what what really compelled me about the film is also something that I'm kind of dubious about, which is there are so many steps along the way where this film book, you instinctively want to compare it to a normal childhood and yeah. the normal experiences that people have had of childhood. So you get this, like, innocence, and then you get a sudden, brutal understanding of the world, and then you get the shock of of understanding your surroundings and the kind of horribleness of being separated from your parents gradually, those boundaries Mm. coming in more and more, which is obviously something that I feel very uncomfortable about doing because this is such a specific scenario and it's such, you know, it's a real trauma for some people and you don't want to generalise and universalise that pain. You don't want to say, oh yeah, it's a metaphor. Yes, because what's happened to them is so exceptional and horrible. Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, I also watched this film and I was just sobbing the entire way through, you know, it was so full of anxiety. And what this is in many ways is a parental anxiety fantasy. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, imagining the worst things, the worst situations you could be in with your child and playing them out on screen in front of you. And I think... For me, I left the cinema thinking more than in any other film that I've seen, like, oh, I actually feel like I have an understanding of what it would feel like to have a baby Mm. and, like, to love something that much but also be so scared of what could happen to something that much. I think that's a lot to do with the performances in this film, which are just amazing. Yes, oh, the the boy who plays Jack is completely incredible. I think it's the best performance, the best dramatic acting performance I've ever seen from a child actor. Yeah, so Jacob Tremblay, who was seven when they found him, Mm. and he's now nine, I think, playing a five-year-old absolutely amazingly. But also Brie Larson, just an incredible performance. And she's Oscar nominated for that Mm. performance, quite rightly. I would have loved to see Jacob Tremblay have the same courtesy because I think these two performances don't work without the strength of the other. And I think just to give Brie Larson, if she wins the Oscar, for example, and he's not even nominated for me, that makes no sense because they're such reciprocal roles. Mm. There's so much about the the connection and the, the spark between them. The director and the makers of the film and the author of the book have said so many times, you know, this is quite a universal story. And there is so much about sort of, you know, like leaving the womb, like the idea Mm. that room is sort of like the womb and all this stuff. But for me, that's 
kind of feels a little bit uncomfortable to me. This is something that our colleague Barbara has been saying as well. But I don't know where you can draw that line in art and say, actually, this is just a universal story out of specifics because that's what all art is to an extent. Yeah, you don't really want to say that this is in any way that motherhood is like being trapped in a tiny room Mm -hmm. by a crazy person. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. That's, That's a really uncomfortable kind of parallel to draw. But it is pushing you in that direction all the time, isn't it? Yeah, and it is also as you said at the beginning, a story about trying to find normality mm. in these situations. Parents essentially nagging their children into doing things mm. properly. One bit that I found completely devastating was when they're still in room. We should say as well that they another way in which the room is kind of, the tension in there is heightened, is that Jack and Ma refer to... They refer to room as room, like with a capital R, not mm. the room. Everything's and personified. Everything in it is impersonified. And, and Jack kind of says, good morning rug, good morning bed, good morning mm. wardrobe. Like he, he thinks of everything as being sort of alive and his companion in some way. But so there's there's a day, I can't remember where it happens, but basically Jack says, Ma is gone with a capital G. Mm. And obviously this is, she's just too depressed to move. Like she's, so she just lies in the bed all day and Jack has to take care of himself. And he's quite kind of, he's not okay with that, but like, the the routineness of it just tears at your heart yeah. because like and that I think is you know if you were a child who grew up with a parent who had a mental illness or mental health problems or anything then yeah there will have been days when they were just gone yeah. and you had to fend for yourself like that that for me was a bit more universal mm, and kind of definitely yeah. and I think for me as well that was the point where I was because because she does seem so normal and like she's coping so unbelievably in that first bit and also the first bit of when they're out of the room that you need to see her experiencing this this yeah. deep depression in order to be like okay yes this is that for me felt more respectful to what yes. what you'd actually be like if you had gone through something like that and i think one of the things it does so well is just because obviously this is an experience that's very claustrophobic in a lot of ways but not really for jack because he likes it in a weird way and not, he likes small, being because he wants yeah. that closeness with his mum and he's never yeah. known any difference and so I think one of the things that really, really tore at my heart was just all of those little portraits of parental child intimacy, even like, you know, them cuddling in the bed. So he, he has to sleep in the wardrobe in case old Nick comes, but then mm. she pulls him out of the wardrobe and pulls him into her bed and they kind of like cuddle. And that really, really got me. Yeah, and like so little moments like that when they're in the bath or... Yeah, because he goes to sleep in the wardrobe and then wakes up in the bed. Yeah, every yeah. day. And just, but, you know, all those little things. And it's the same when they came out of the room when, you know, there, there are just sometimes these little, mostly physical moments where you're just like, oh my gosh, they're, you know, that is just the level of intimacy there is so, so close. And a lot of Mars kind of difficulty coming out of the room is knowing that she has to try and like encourage him to be without her. And that I think it did so well. Yeah, so I liked it, I think, overall. Yeah, I did as well. I I was not quite so kind of punched in the gut as I was expecting to be. Because the novel did affect me that way. Mm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Why I, found, I, I found it weirdly. I was more like that in the film. Yeah. I was like with the, the escape sequence and and the, the being oh, I reunited found that afterwards. So stressful. The yeah. worst. Like most. Even though I sort of knew that they, mm. he was going to make it out because I'd seen the trailer and the trailer's full of shots of them outside of the room. Yeah. I was just like, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't cope with this. And I think the director and the and the the author and stuff have said that they kind of deliberately did that because they knew that it would be so mm. so much if you don't know what's on the other side but yeah i really hope i'm you know brie larson to win the oscar for that performance 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now we're going to talk about the Netflix Marvel series, Jessica Jones, which is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, I don't know if it's the Cinematic or Universe. what do you call it? I don't know. I've been told off about this before, that ah. the Cinematic Universe is apparently something different to the TV stuff, but whatever. Okay, fine. It's part of the Marvel world, yeah. that thing. <laughs> and it's about Jessica Jones, who is basically a PI, who also has these sort of abilities. Yeah, she's really strong. Yeah, she's really strong. We get the sense that she's not the only one with these abilities. She lives in New York and she's basically trying to get by, it seems. Yeah. She's like she's got a few issues. She's seems to be suffering from PTSD. You realize that pretty early on because she's having these very strange sort of flashbacks and she'll be on the tube and stuff and like images will come into her mind or sat on a fire escape and these images mm. start flashing into her mind. So it seems like she's having some sort of trauma related flashbacks and she's also drinking a lot. She's yes, having she fully committed to the whiskey in the paper bag when she walks down the street, uh, that going for the real like, yep, yeah, I'm just gonna wear this alcoholic badge wherever I go. A big part of the job is looking for the worst in people. Turns out I excel at that. You a PI? I'm just trying to make a living. You know, booze costs money. Usually. Jessica Jones. I saw you. What do you want to know? Can you punch through a wall? Stop moving car. A slow moving car. We get introduced to her by seeing her get given a case. Yeah, so it kind of goes on from there, really. I mean, I didn't really like Jessica to start with. I found her kind of abrasive and She's quite abrasive. abrupt and yeah. so on. But you very quickly realise that these are not exactly character traits, but more responses to things that have happened to her. Like, she has become 
like that as a kind of defence mechanism. Again, dive out now if you don't want to be spoiled. The reason she's like this is because of this kind of shadowy figure of someone else who has extraordinary abilities, but this person, rather than having extraordinary strength, has the ability to control the people around him. Yeah, it's like an extreme... Not even charisma, but, you know, it's kind of like manipulation and charisma on steroids. He just says stuff like, you'd like to give me some dinner? And people are like, oh my god, yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, or or like, I like your jacket, give it to me. Yeah. And you're just overwhelmed with desire Desire to to give it to him. To give it to him. Mm -hmm. And of course, he's using his powers for evil, not for good. And we learn that Jessica has escaped from his control that Mm -hmm. she was formerly controlled by him and we somehow managed and somehow managed to get away from him and now although she is just trying to kind of make ends meet by working as a, a private investigator you know taking pictures for people to use in their divorce proceedings and stuff like that she is also on the lookout for this man Kilgrave his name is coming back to get her or signs that he's in some way, influencing her life again. Well, we open the series, and she's pretty certain that he's dead. Yes. He's been ruled dead. We saw a death certificate. But he's still, in her mind, stalking her, because yeah. she's still struggling to overcome this trauma um, of Kilgrave, played by David Tennant, very well. Mm. Um, and I think we've talked about this before, but this is largely a kind of metaphor you're you're encouraged to draw parallels between what he's done to her and domestic abuse, basically. Very, very much so, yeah. I mean, so I've watched, I think, five episodes. I've watched three. You've watched three. So, but I think generally, quite early on, the atmosphere that we get from her flashbacks of her, if you can call it a relationship with him, is that it had all of the kind of coercive, controlling aspects of domestic abuse. Yeah. So he buys her Mm. gifts, takes her out to nice restaurants, does all of that, and also makes her do things that she doesn't want to do because he says that she has to. And, you know, you don't even need the supernatural element there for that to be a traumatic situation. Yeah, and a lot of the things he seems to want to make her do are kind of to fulfil this role. So he wants to go to a specific restaurant, he wants her to wear specific lingerie. Like mm-hmm. it's he, all... he wants her to smile yeah. while, while she's at it. it. It's all about her playing this role that he's concocted in his head, and in order to do so, he has to completely eliminate her free will. Yeah. So I, I want to go quite like plot detail heavy on the first episode mm. of this. Spoilers and all. And what happens is she gets presented with a case... And it's a sort of missing young person, but she's not actually missing because she's calling her parents once a week. But their suspicion is that she's in some kind of cult or something. She's dropped out of university. She was a very gifted athlete and she stopped running. So they're just like, please, can you help us? They were referred to her by, you assume, a policeman, someone at the police station. And as the episode goes on, Jessica realises that this girl is under the same control that she was from the same man. He's doing all the same things, taking her to the same restaurants, making her wear the same clothes. She can see all her purchases on this girl's credit cards and it's all the same. And essentially she rescues her um, and she manages to take her away from the hotel room that Kilgrave has left her in, despite her like screaming and kicking and saying, I can't leave, I can't leave. But Jessica, with her strength, manages to... That's one of the most horrible moments, I think, is she finds Hope, her name is the girl, um, she finds her in the hotel room and she's lying motionless in the bed and for a second you're like, oh my god, she's dead. Um, And then Jessica's like, he told you not to move, didn't he? Yeah, and And she says she wet the bed because she wouldn't move and she's been there for like six hours. 
which is something you can imagine happening in yeah. a terrible relationship like that, in, a, in, a, in an abusive relationship. And she manages to rescue her, takes her back to her office to meet her parents and then sends them off in the lift and she's going to meet them downstairs. And there's just this awful moment. I was, you know, I found this program scary as it was. And then in the final moments of this episode, she's in the lift with her parents. She's gone all glassy eyed, like she's not in control of her behaviour anymore. And you just see her get a gun out of her bag, shoot both of her parents and then she kind of comes out of it and she's just like screaming at what she's done. And it's like so horrible and it's so unexpected mm. and shocking. And that kind of sets you up for the kind of stuff that's to come in the series, basically, doesn't it? Because she, Jessica is just trying to stop people from doing terrible things under the influence of this man. And obviously it's almost impossible to stop people. And it sort of becomes clear as well that not only is he not dead, but also that he's trying to toy with her. Mm-hmm. That so... The reason he sort of took up with Hope and then sent Hope to her is to mess with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, he's all, all of his actions are related to Jessica in some way. And I, you know, I haven't watched far enough to know, but the feeling that I get is because she's perhaps the only one who's managed to break out of his control. Yes, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. He's, she's, he's kind of um, furious about that, and he wants to make her pay for that. Well, I think what you're kind of led to believe is that if you had th- those kind of controlling abilities you would very quickly believe that they were absolute and unbreakable. And mm-hmm. if someone's been proved you wrong about that, you'd be really angry. Yeah. So it's really good. And I, what I like about it, actually, is what they've clearly tried, I think, in, in my opinion, to to do, which is to really minimise the superpower aspect of it yeah. in favour of a more of a programme that looks more deeply at, like, relationships. It's more film noir-y than it Very is so, superhero yeah. because she is these... You know, when we're saying at the beginning, she's got all these traits like abrasiveness and alcoholism, and she's very much in the vein of that kind of like misanthropic PI from the, you know, like 1930s, 40s, whatever, mm. film noir movies. And for me, the dialogue in this is kind of... can be weak. It's yeah. kind of cliched. It's kind of full of you can't be near me, which is, you know, also a very superhero-y trope. Mm. You know, I'm dangerous. It's better if I distance all people from me so that they don't become targets. But what it does do is it puts those very classic masculine lines in the mouth of a woman, no less, you know, a domestic violence survivor. And I think that is something to be said for that. There is some something new there, even if you're like, well, I've heard that line before. Yeah, Definitely. And I like as well that there's no... So I think it's in the first episode, isn't it, when she's she's doing a kind of routine, so, you know, serving some papers on, mm-hmm. on someone mm-hmm. for on behalf of a lawyer. And she ends up, like, picking up his car with one hand mm-hmm. in order to get him to listen to her. But that's kind of... I think as much as I've watched, that's... I can probably count on one hand the time that she displays excessive strength mm-hmm. to get her way. She's not exactly embarrassed about her abilities, but she's just uncurious about them. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to, you know, there's, there, there are no like random shots of her like flying around New York or anything to no. give you that kind of cinematic, woo, I'm Spider-Man moment or something. It's just not important. And perhaps it's because she's seen what can happen yeah. if you take them too seriously. But I, I definitely like that because I'm not someone who's overly into the sort of capes and, yeah. and you know, underwear on the outside style of superhero I, stuff. I just, I just thought of, um, have you seen The Incredibles? Yeah. You know the um, fashion designer yeah, character yeah. <laughs> from that one? She's like, no capes! Edgar Mould, or whatever. Uh, so for me, this is hitting all the right notes. I really like it. I think that you have to go in with an allowance. There's going to be a bit of, you're quite the firecracker, Jessica Jones. Yeah. Like, there's, a, <laughs> there's all of that. But 
it's worth it in my opinion because it yes. is interesting the plot so far is still surprising me i like it tonally i like it visually i think it's good i think it has and this is unsurprising because they kind of come out of the same studio it has things in common with agent carter mm. which we talked about um, yeah i like this more than ago. agent carter I kind of like, I'm not sure yet, but I think possibly I will, yeah. I didn't carry on with Agent Carter, even though I liked the main character. I think because I felt more overwhelmed by all the the extra info mm. that was going on. Like, there was a lot of detail and I'm not that acquainted with the universe. It, yeah, Agent Carter's more closely woven in with the whole Captain America yeah. storyline. Whereas this is, I think, following on from Daredevil. Right. But you just don't need to have seen Daredevil no, for it to make any sense. not at all. Very, um, in the next couple of episodes, they very occasionally refer to, like, a major cataclysmic event, mm-hmm. which I think is some kind of alien invasion. Yeah, they talked about that in the first um, episode. But... The green men. This is just not... You know, all you, all you need to know is what they say in the dialogue, which is, there was this alien invasion, and the people like Jessica saved the city. That's it. Yeah. Like, you don't need to have seen the invasion. And that... That I really appreciate, because I think the Marvel films and TV series are at their best when they translate for people who haven't read the comic books Definitely. or whatever. You know, when they're just good standalone pieces of art. Definitely. And I'm I'm far more into crime than I am, like, t- on TV yes, anyway, same. than I am into sort of superhero stuff. So for me, this works because it's like, oh, it's like a fun crime thing so far. Yes, and she does, if, <laughs> this is probably a really stupid comparison, but she does have periodic realisations like Inspector Morse, you know, like, yeah. like Inspector Morse, she will just like sit in her room for ages thinking about something and then be like, aha. Yeah. And I'm very much more into, it's part of the reason why I love the kind of golden age, 40s and 50s detective mm-hmm. novels so much, is because most of the action happens in the hero's head. Yeah. And she is good as well. Like, one yeah. of the, she's really, really good at her job and it's not part of her superpower. So, yeah. like, she, more impressive than anything to do with her super strength is the fact that she can just call people up and be like, and she's really good at lying. She's really good at getting people to give her stuff that she wants. And you're just like, yeah, she's just a really, really capable, persuasive woman. And I like to see that. Yes, definitely. And it's also worth mentioning that she's she's not the only capable woman character yeah no in no this. no there's loads there's there's loads like her her best friend trish is another one the lawyer at the the firm that she sort of freelances for is another one it's one of those programs where you immediately become blissfully unaware of the fact that you are mostly watching women on screen yeah, yeah. which is such a rare feeling because most of the time you're watching all men and like there's the one lady standing in the corner and actually now you mention it like it's pretty diverse they're not yeah. all white and they're not all straight at all in any way so yeah. that is hitting those buttons as but well that, but what's what's i think so good about that is that you didn't notice that no i didn't really um so it's not being like well hey let us wave our diversity of agenda no, no, no. in your face it's like this is just people yeah exactly living in new york so so of course it would be weird it would be weird if <laughs> there wasn't like a major black character etc yeah, yeah. So last week, I gave Caroline the Technicolor Delights of Sheep in the Big City, the Cartoon Network kids cartoon starring a sheep who escapes to the big city. Caroline, what did you make of Sheep in the Big City? I love Sheep in the Big City. Did you? I spent quite a lot of time on eBay trying to find if there were DVDs. I have sheep a DVD. Can, can I borrow yeah, it? Yeah, I don't know if I've got it in my London flat, but I found one in a pound shop once and I was just like, you know, we were talking about, did I dream this? I saw the DVD and I was like, 
it was a dream. It just was like buying. Absolutely buying. I don't know if you've ever even watched the DVD. I want to watch more. So I've only seen the first episode because that's all I could find on a easy Google on the internet. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I mean, for context for listeners, I really like things that involve sheep anyway. I spent quite a lot yeah, of last... Of I spent quite a lot of last year because there was this big book out that was about a shepherd in the Lake District. So I like interviewed him and I wrote multiple pieces about it. And then I read a whole load of other books about shepherds. Um, and then I wrote more pieces about it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm already quite invested in things that Keen sheep on the do sheep. and it also reminded me really quite strongly of the Shaun the Sheep film have you seen the Shaun yeah, the Sheep film? yeah I haven't film? seen it but I, I, I've se- obviously know who Shaun the Sheep is from yes. his many uh, adventures in Wallace and Gromit A Close Shave yes so Shaun the Sheep got his own spin-off film last year in which it's kind of the roles are reversed as they are in Sheep in the Big City but what happens is the sheep have decided they've been working far too hard you know grazing and that they deserve a day off where they get to hang out in the farmhouse and watch TV. So they sort of trick the farmer into falling asleep in this caravan on the farm and then they're like living it up in the farmhouse having a lovely time. But then disaster strikes in that one of the chocks comes out from under the caravan wheels and the caravan with the sleeping farmer goes hurtling all the way down the hill into the city. Yeah, it sounds like a similar setup. Basically, so then the sheep will have to go to the city in order to get their farmer back. So it's kind of rolls a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reversed. Yeah, because the and, farmer in Sheep in the Big City is looking for his lost yes. sheep. But so I just felt like, yeah, there's a, I feel like there's a strong canon here of, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sheep gone missing. Sheep stories. gone missing in urban areas. Yeah. Oh my God. It's, and also obviously that is the, uh, the inversion of Babe 2, Big Pig in the City. Pig in the City. Yes, exactly. So I think there's a, yeah, there's definitely a whole kind of, one one could get quite poncy about oh my this God, and talk about definitely the par- should uh, talk about the the uh, the intrusion of the pastoral into the urban. Oh my god, that is actually so funny, and we should. It is quite weird, though, right? It is quite weird because obviously, unlike those things that we've just mentioned, Babe and Shaun the Sheep, in this, a, it's it's a cartoon. It's not stop motion or live mm-hmm. action pigs. And also, there's you know, there's the what are they called? The like general guy, Gen- um, general public. And private specific. Yes, the the military people who are also yeah. searching for the sheep because of ray gun reasons. They have a sheep powered ray gun, and it's yeah. literally. Have you seen the ray gun in the first episode? It's just like a big I machine with a sheep hole. Yes, in a it. sheep <laughs> sheep space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a whole kind of dimension of threat that you don't get in in those other things. Yeah. Well, I don't actually remember that much plot wise about sheep in the big city. I seem to remember it tonally a lot more. Like it's got this weird, like fairly sarcastic almost yes, tone, it is. even though it is quite surface level wacky and colourful. And it reminded me not it's not nearly as much as something like um Adventure Time or Archer, which are cartoons that are clearly aimed at grown-ups. Mm. But I did feel like there was an element of that. I do think it's a bit of a precursor yeah. to things like Adventure Time because it's got the same sort of colourfulness and weirdness that you'd expect from a children's cartoon, but it's got a sort of dryness that you would expect from something aimed at adults i can imagine if i'd watched it as a child would have just gone right over my head yeah and i think i i remember what i loved about it i don't know if they had did they have any ad breaks in the first episode that you watched they do like fake ad breaks yes yeah yeah and i loved those and those are clearly taking the mick out of adverts but 
in a way that feels a bit more adult. It feels a bit more satirical, almost. Well, satirical is not quite the right word, but you know what I the, mean. Because the, the fake ad break is, is a big part of Saturday Night Live and stuff yeah. like that, the commercial yeah. parody. So yeah, which is obviously aimed at grown-ups. Yeah, and they say, do you think, I remember they, they had one that was just like a girl stroking the hair of her dolly, saying it over and over again, like, this is my dolly. And it was like <laughs> kind of creepy and weird. And you're like, whoa, that was random. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, so it, I think it, there is something, there's an element of it perhaps influencing later adult swim style stuff yeah certainly and as i say like i just found it really delightful and and given that as we've said the other two things that we've talked about this week room and jessica jones are both quite heavy quite heavy having sheep in the city to look forward to was was nice yeah so what are we doing for me next time i am going to recommend you miss fisher's murder mysteries Oh, this is the thing that we were recommended recently. We have been recommended by, I think, a few listeners. Yeah. Um, is it Australian? It is Australian. I also put a a piece about it in my newsletter a while ago, and it okay. I think it's probably generated the most inbox traffic that anything I've ever put in there. So many people emailed me being like, oh my God, I love that program. Thank oh, man. you so much. How funny. So the story of it is that it's made by the Australian Broadcasting Company, I think the kind of BBC equivalent there, mm-hmm. but when it got on Netflix, it went massive in America. Okay. And now it's become this so that's kind fairly of, recently, though. Yeah, so it's become this kind of cult hit in the US and I think to an extent in the UK, even though we would never normally really get Australian things yeah. as exports. So will it be on um, my UK Netflix? Yeah, it's on UK Netflix. Okay, great. So other listeners who, who, who want to kind of catch up and watch along for next week, yeah, if you've got a Netflix subscription, it'll be there. Great. It's set in the 20s. It's a kind of detective as the title suggests miss fisher is a sort of private detective which listeners will remember from five minutes ago i like (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so she sort of solves mysteries for people is she a miss marpley figure no she's a lot younger than that okay and she's also quite progressive in her views and lifestyle and stuff there's there's a kind of constant theme which i think is really interesting and it's definitely interesting for a kind of uk us perspective well she's working in the early 1920s obviously the first world war is very very recent Mm -hmm. so it's a recurring theme that quite a lot of the time the crimes end up being in some way related to like someone's PTSD or some kind of regimental argument or something like that. So you can't even be like, boo, bad guys. No, it's more complicated than that a lot of the time. Um, And like the the policeman that she works with on a semi-regular basis also has his own stuff related to that. And I feel like we don't often get the kind of Australian perspective on what were supposedly world mm, wars. Yeah, so no, that's, not at all. I find, I find that really interesting as well. Okay, great. Big thing to watch out for, the clothes. The clothes okay. are amazing. Okay, I'll get my notepad out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I want to know your top three outfits Miss Fisher okay, wears sure. next week. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, iTunes and Tumblr. All the links are at newstatesman.com slash S-R-S-L-Y. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.